This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Doesn't get a whole lot better than that, does it? That was fantastic. Absolutely. Man. I got, I got goosebumps. That just gets me fired up. I don't know. Uh, I love it when I see people's lives transformed. Uh, when people experience God in a way that it just changes everything. When they experience uh, a sense of, of, of who they are, of purpose, of, of identity, of vision, of passion. That just gets me going. And so uh, for us to be able to share in their experience is really sharing in a common experience. We are experiencing God together. Uh, and I believe, I trust that God is transforming us as we do that. That uh, we are changed people when we come, when we engage with him. Uh, we are talking today about humility in a me world. Uh, I think it's funny that I get to preach on this one. Uh, something that in, uh, in eighth grade, my yearbook teacher gave me the Narcissist Award. That was my gift uh, as I left eighth grade. Uh, and God's been messing with me this week as I prepared this sermon. He really has, and I, I like that about God. He keeps me on my toes uh, because I had a whole outline planned, and then we just kind of scratched it. Uh, scraped. That seems to be a common theme for me the last couple of weeks, actually. And, uh, so I'm hoping that God is going to do something uh, in our community today. I think that he scratched it because there's a different word for us. Uh, there's something that he wants to speak to us, and so I'm, I'm excited about it, and uh, I'm ready to, uh, to be changed, to be transformed, and I hope that you are as well. And we watched that video, if you got here on time or maybe even a minute or two early. Uh, and it was, it's all about me, right? Church is all about uh, me. And sometimes we get stuck in that, and that's really not true. Uh, but at the same time, faith is about me. It's about me and you and us and, and how God wants to engage us uh, personally and as a community. Uh, but when we talk about humility, the thing that God's been bringing up is that we have to know who, uh, who we are, right? I can't be humble if I don't actually know who I I am. And so we're going to talk about that a bit this morning and then see how that played out in the life of uh, a uh, character in the Bible who I really enjoy to, to watch. So we're going to go from Jesus to a cave uh, in, in the Old Testament and have a good time with that. Before we start, uh, I hope you grabbed your notes. Uh, there's a spot in there uh, that asks a question, who are you? If someone was to ask you, they knew your name already. Let's assume that, that they know your name. Uh, and they said, who are you? How would you respond? I gave you some space in your notes. Just take a minute and write down the things that come to mind. Who, who am I? How, would I? how would I answer that question? Take a minute and just write that down. Most of us probably are writing some sort of description of who we are uh, based on our relationships, right? I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I am a son. I'm a, a twin brother. Uh, I am um, a nephew. Uh, I'm an uncle uh, recently in the last two months, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that's who, who I would describe myself in relationships. And maybe you wrote down things like that. I'm a mom or I'm a dad or I'm a friend. Uh, maybe you wrote down your job. I'm a teacher or a doctor or a construction worker or, uh, you know, I, I am a pastor or a city planner or something like that. I'm a mom, a stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home mom. I, I, I don't know uh, what you wrote down. Maybe you talked about physical descriptions. I'm tall or I'm short I have glasses, uh, I'm thin, I'm thick. I, you know, I don't know what you wrote down. I have a lot of hair. I'm like Samson in the Bible, or maybe I'm, I'm less like Samson in the Bible. Um, 
I don't know what you put. Uh, maybe you went deeper, like I'm a nice person, I'm good. Or maybe you got really honest and said, I'm, I'm usually a nice person, uh, but I can be a real jerk sometimes. I don't know. That's not me, of course. I'm, that's, uh, I don't know why you laughed at that. Uh, there's a common thread in all of that. Uh, these are ways that we define ourselves. But the thing about all of the, the pieces that I just spoke of is that they are changing in our lives. Uh, tomorrow you might not be uh, uh, in that job, or you might not be uh, a mom or a dad or a son. These things are constantly change, uh, changing, which, which leaves us asking the question, who am I? Right? If that's not who I am, if my relationships don't define me, then, then who am I? Uh, because we all want to be defined by something. We all want significance in our lives. We all want uh, people to, to recognize that, that we have some value or some worth, that we belong, that we fit somewhere. I think deep within each of us, there's this craving, this longing uh, to be known and to, to, to be accepted, uh, to be loved, to be of significance. I remember in sixth grade, uh, Stussy t-shirts were a big deal. You remember Stussy shirts? There was that uh, Stussy symbol that if you're in your late 20s, you would draw, and I always drew mine backwards because I'm dyslexic, and uh, so I always, but whatever, it was cool to be a Stussy guy, and, um, and this was kind of the first big branding thing that I went through. Our junior high was 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so uh, girls became a big deal at that point, and, and dances and Stussy t-shirts. Uh, and now I had hammer pants in fifth grade. Like, I was pretty hip, you know, but Stussy shirts were, were really where it was. And there were two types of Stussy shirts. There were the real Stussy shirts, uh, and then there were the fake Stussy shirts, which were like Hanes t-shirts with a Stussy symbol on the front. It looked just like a Stussy shirt, except for the tag said Hanes. It didn't say Stussy. Uh, and I had one real Stussy shirt. It was red. It was amazing. Uh, I wish I still owned it. Uh, it. I would look really buff if I wore my sixth grade Stussy shirt. Um, so I had one real Stussy shirt, and I bu- had a bunch of Stussy knockoffs. Uh, and you couldn't tell the difference unless you flipped the tag. And so there were tag flippers at my school. Uh, my friends were tag flippers. Uh, and we were in a big group one day, and one of the guys walked up. And, and so I always try to keep my back to the tag flippers, because you just can't be, uh, you can't be caught as a fake, as a fraud. Uh, but he got me. He flipped my tag, and he showed everybody, this is a Hanes t-shirt. This is not a Stussy shirt. Uh, and I was mortified, right, because I was in sixth grade. And, and there's something uh, in sixth grade where you, you think if they know that this is a fake Stussy shirt, are they going to think that I'm as fake as my shirt is? Are they not going to accept me because they don't accept my shirt? Uh, That's the sixth grade dilemma. I wonder if we grow out of it sometimes, right? If they really knew who I was, would they really accept me? Would they want me? Would they they, uh, know me and love me and and all these things? Um, What would it look like for us if uh, tomorrow every way that we defined ourselves was gone? We just didn't have it anymore. Uh, what if we were left with a Hanes t-shirt with a Stussy sticker on the front, uh, but not really a Stussy shirt? What, what if everything that described you was just gone tomorrow? Who would you be then? This morning we're talking about a tension that we have in Scripture, that God wants us to be people who have a life of significance, uh, of passion, of, of purpose. Uh, and significance is defined by being important, right, or being of consequence, And God wants us to have a life that is of consequence, that is important. Uh, To be honest, we all, we want that. We want importance. We want to matter. Uh, At the same time, God calls us to be people who are humble. 
And oftentimes the people who are the most important can be the least humble. And, and I think uh, the thing that, that gets us there is that we, uh, we don't really know who we are. Because if we really knew who we were, then we could be people who are humble and significant at the same time. So this is what I want to look at today. I want to look at having a life of, of humble significance that's rooted in a knowing of who I am. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, would you uh, speak to us? You mixed this up this morning for a reason, and I pray that that would become clear. Lord, would you get me out of the way? Uh, would you teach me something new about you? Would you teach our community something new? Uh, would we be in the process of becoming uh, the people that you are calling us to be? Uh, would we know who we are in you? Would that give us a deep uh, sense of humble significance as we live our lives? And would you be forming in us a passion for what could be? Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jewish calendar revolves around feasts. There are major feasts that go on throughout the year, kind of like we have Christmas and we have Easter and Thanksgiving and and, and big celebrations. The Jews weren't a whole lot different. And in uh, John chapter 13, Jesus is at one of these feasts with his disciples. It's called the Passover. Uh, It's the last feast that he celebrated uh, before he died. Uh, And it's a significant feast because it marked the ending of 400 years of slavery where the Egyptians had ruled over the Jewish people. And so every year the Jews would celebrate this feast and remember that God is the God who brings freedom, that God is the God who releases us from slavery, that God is the God that gives us a new life and a new home and a new way of experiencing the world. And so they were in this moment, they were celebrating this feast, they were having this remembrance. And it's significant that Jesus is about to die. He's going to be crucified, and he's going to raise again from the dead, but there's something that God is connecting here. See, the God that brought freedom from Egypt uh, after 400 years of slavery is the same God that through Jesus is going to bring freedom to the world through Jesus' death and through his being raised from the dead. Uh, It's the the way that God brought about this new life, this new experience with him of healing and of wholeness. And uh, so they're all eating dinner together, and Jesus has mentioned the idea of this to his disciples a number of times, but they don't seem to get it. And in John 13, chapter 1, uh, it says this, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look around at one another at a loss to know which one of them he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' chest one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaned back thus on Jesus' chest and said, Lord, who is it? Have you ever sat down with someone uh, and they told you that their life uh, was going to be ending soon, that they would be dying soon? It changes the tenor of the moment. It should Uh, And and it did in this moment. They were celebrating. They were remembering God. And God, uh, he throws it down. He says, not only am I going to die, but one of you who's sitting in this room is going to be the one that betrays me, that leads to my my death. And the disciples freak out. They begin to ask, who is it? Is it you? Is it me? Do I not know something? Uh, We know that the disciple who was going to betray him already had started that process. And so he knows that he's the one. And the rest of them are are looking around trying to figure out who is it. And, And in the midst of the chaos, as they're all accusing each other and trying to figure out who it is, uh, we had this line that, that I missed for years. It says, There was one reclining on Jesus' chest, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Just sitting back, reclining on his chest in the midst of chaos. We were at a wedding last weekend, and uh, 
Uh, Maddie, our daughter, goes to bed about 6.30, but the wedding didn't start till 5. And so uh, we took her with us because she's a party animal. And uh, by about 7.45, she was pretty much done with the wedding, even though we had just started dinner. And the music's bumping some, some fantastic early 90s rock. And, uh, and I look over, and Maddie is sound asleep on Maria's chest. It doesn't matter that the lights are going and people are, are hitting, the, you know, hitting their forks to the glass, which uh, is funny because you, you would assume that the people are going to be kissing plenty as the night goes on, right? But we want them to be kissing in front of us because for some reason we like to take part in that tradition. And so they're banging the glasses and the music's going and you know, pie and cake are being thrown in faces. And there's Maddie just sound asleep uh, on Maria's chest. When I asked you, who are you? Did your mind go to the descriptors? I'm a father, I'm a son, I work in this job, I'm a mother, a, a daughter, a friend. Or did your mind go to uh, the simple answer, I, I am the one who Jesus loves? The word love in the original language of the Bible means to find uh, joy in someone. So, so he says, Jesus finds joy in this person who's sitting back on his chest. When someone asks you, Tell me who you are. Tell me about yourself. Do you say a bunch of descriptors, or do you just say, I am the one who God loves? Uh, I'm the one who reclines on Jesus' chest. You probably don't say that, because that'd be awkward, right? And Christians, we don't want to give people reasons to think we're awkward. Uh, so, but do you think it, right? Does your mind go to, I know who I am. At my core, I am loved by Jesus. I'm the one who he uh, just finds joy in. I'm the one who can just sit on his chest and can lean up and look at him and ask him any question that I want. Because in the midst of chaos, when people are yelling and accusing each other, I know who I am. I am the one that's sitting in Jesus' chest. I'm the one who he loves. The world around us tells us that we should find our identities and our successes and our failures, oftentimes. Uh, But there's some dangerous outcome when we go there, because if we define ourselves by our successes, it leads to feelings of superiority, feelings of entitlement or pride. Uh, I succeeded in whatever this thing is, therefore I am a success. On the other side of that, though, if we define ourselves by our failures, it leads us to feelings of insecurity, of hopelessness, of depression. I failed at that thing, therefore I am a failure. And this plays out every day in our lives, right? If our kids are doing well, then we think I'm a success because my kid is doing well. But if our kids are doing bad, uh, in school or just having a hard time, then we think, oh, I'm a failure as a parent. I'm a failure. It goes to work if we get a promotion or um, we're doing things that are going really well, we think I'm a success. But if we get laid off from our job uh, or if something we try to do just backfires, we think I am a, I'm a failure because we define ourselves in relation to uh, the things that we do the people that we connect with. If, if I'm a good friend, I, I, I feel good about myself. If I do something wrong, I don't. Um, and that's natural. If there is no God in the world, that's the only logical outcome we could have, right? If there's no God, if there's no one that defines us at our core, then really our successes and our failures do mark us. Uh, the things that we do define who we are. But w- what if we stop defining ourselves by our successes and our failures and begin defining ourselves based on God's view of us. It would free us to have lives of humble significance. 
It would allow us to be humble when we succeed, and it would keep us from insecurity when we fail. Imagine a life where you could screw up. For some of us, that's easier than others. Uh, I can imagine that fairly quickly. Uh, A life where you screw up, but it doesn't cause you to question your core of who you are. Where you can make a mistake, but you're not a mistake. Imagine a world where you could find a cure for AIDS, and you could still be the same humble person the day before as you were the day after. Where you could literally change the world, but it would not change you. You would still have the same guiding force, the same center, the same peace. Uh, Finding our identity in God frees us up to take chances and experience a life that matters. I think one of the greatest things that keeps us from experiencing significance in life is fear. Fear of failing. Uh, Fear of being made fun of. Fear of being looked at differently. Uh, Maybe fear of succeeding and what that would mean. Imagine being free to really love people without worrying about how they respond. Imagine being free to love your kids without fear of how they're going to turn out and how that would reflect on you. You just love them because you know that you are loved and so you can transfer that love to others. Imagine freedom to try new things without fear of the outcome. Uh, I took a new role at the church in the last couple of months uh, and it's scary to me. Uh, I had a, a friend tell me, and, and he wasn't trying to, to be mean, I don't think, or hurtful, but he said, you know what? you just can't do that job that they gave you. Uh, you will not succeed at it. You don't have the, the ability. You don't have the, um, the experience. You just won't be able to do it. This was like my first day on the job. <laughs> it became really important for me in that moment to find myself in God because if I didn't know who I was in God, then that would kill me. Right? We're, we're going to do this new thing in the fall. We're going to launch a whole new structure for how we do our, our life groups, our community groups that meet together, that share life. I think it's going to be amazing. I think that it will be a powerful expression of, of who God is and God's moving and God's love. I think it will draw people into our community of faith. I think it will get us out into Petaluma serving and loving people. I think it's going to be one of the most powerful things we've done in years. If it succeeds, and I hope that it does, and I am praying every day that it does. That will not define me. If it fails, and I'm praying that it does not fail, and really that's a lot of up to you guys. So, uh, but that will not define me either, right? I'm defined by God's love for me, by God's relationship to me. And that frees me to try new things. It it frees me to do this crazy thing with our life groups that's going to turn things upside down but could be really amazing. Uh, It frees you to have a life of significance without fear uh, of what people will think or say. And don't we all want to have a life that matters? I I think we do. Uh, But to do that, we need to know how God sees us. We need to know that we are the ones who... Jesus loves. And that's the one constant in our lives. Uh, heaven forbid your, your kids would not love you someday or your, your spouse. That would hurt us. But there's one constant. Jesus loves you. You could turn on Jesus tomorrow and say, I don't love you, Jesus. He still loves you. That's the one constant that we have, is that God loves us. There was reclining at Jesus' chest one of his disciples whom he loved. There's a man named David who, uh, who got it. He would become the king at one point, 
but at this point, uh, he is a warrior for a guy named Saul, who's the current king, who happens to be his father-in-law. David started as a shepherd. He became a warrior, and then he became the greatest king that the Jewish people ever had. Right now, he's in the warrior stage, and his father-in-law is the king. And, and David killed a, a giant named Goliath, and uh, his fame begins spreading throughout the community. And people are cheering for David. They're promoting David. They're excited about David. And the more that they cheer for David, the more angry and insecure Saul gets. And so people lift up David, Saul gets angry. People praise David, Saul gets insecure. Uh, And it gets to the point where one day David and Saul are together in a room, and and Saul's a big guy, about seven feet tall, and and Saul grabs a spear and he throws it at David, and it hits the wall. And I'm trying to figure out if that has to do with his his, uh, insecurity or if it has to do with it's his son-in-law, and I haven't figured that out yet. Because now that I have a daughter, I could see either, either side, either side. But David escapes. He doesn't get hit by the spear. He runs to his house, and then Saul sends people to taunt David, and they try to kill him again. He escapes out a window. Uh, and at this point in the story, David is in a cave in a place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is this hill country, if you saw a picture, with lots of caves all over it. So it's a good place to hide if you're looking for a cave. David and his men are in this cave that goes way back inside uh, and Saul finds out that David is there. So Saul takes 3,000 of his men uh, to start searching all these caves in this region uh, so that they can find David and they can kill him and they can kill his men. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you more after I read it because you'll think I'm making this up if I just say it to you. So you got it. This is Jesus. This is God here. And he's hilarious. First uh, Samuel 24, verse 4. And this is Saul they're referring to. Uh, He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And that that word relieve himself literally means that he was going number two, and that's all as graphic as I'm going to get. See, I told you you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. He went to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in that cave. So he, he happens upon this cave, and it's the exact same cave that David and his men happened to be hiding in. Uh, The men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David crept up unnoticed and he cut off the corner of Saul's robe because Saul had laid it down because he was uh, taking care of business. And and so he took his robe off. And so Saul, uh, David cuts off the corner of it. Verse five, afterward, David was conscious stricken uh, for having cut off the corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And after Saul, uh, and and Saul left the cave and he went on his way. And this is God's sense of humor. Uh, Saul and 3,000 men are looking at all these caves and, and Saul uh, he gets a little bit of a rumble, and so he's like, hey, I'm the king, and I'm not going to go into the bathroom with you, so you just stay here, and I'm going to go take care of, of, of business. And he, he walks into this cave, and you can imagine David and his men are far back in the cave, and they see the shadow of the seven-foot man uh, walking into the cave, and they know it's Saul, and they have to be thinking his men are right behind him, uh, and they're going to come in. This is it. We're going to die, and they're just sitting there with their swords, you know, a little scared. Uh, and Saul walks in, and he, he takes his robe off, and he, he you know, uh, goes, he, he relieves himself. Uh, you know, there's no two ways to, to say it. And, and so David goes up and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And the scripture says that he is 
stricken, heart-stricken heart or conscience-stricken, uh, which literally means that his heart was cut to the core. Something about cutting off Saul's robe cut him to the core. Uh, and uh, he was upset because to cut off the corner of the robe uh, was a symbol of taking power away from the king. So the, the robe had uh, the king's emblem on it, and it had some of the king's conquests. And, and he cuts off part of the robe, basically saying, hey, I am the new king. I have the robe. I've taken the power from Saul, and now it's me. I'm the king. And it's interesting because uh, David has been anointed at this point by a prophet to become king someday. So we all know David's going to become king someday. Uh, even Saul knows it. That's why Saul's trying to kill him. And yet at the same time, David gets upset and he says, how could I, I do this to my king, the one who the Lord has anointed at this point to be, to be king? Living humbly with God means that we're going to dream God-sized dreams, but we're going to wait for God's timing to live them out. David would become king, but this wasn't the time for it, and David knew it. This was not God's timing for David to become king. It wasn't good enough for David just to, uh, to take the kingdom by force. He needed to do it in God's way. Verse 8 says, Then David went out to the cave and called out to Saul. He said, uh, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and he, he prostrate himself on the ground. Right? He just lays down on the ground. And he begins to, to yell to Saul like this. Uh, he said, Why do you listen to men who say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord has delivered you into my hands. Some of my men urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. That's my dramatic interpretation. <laughs> but think about this. The guy's trying to kill him. He's got 3,000 men, and David uh, calls after him, and he lays himself down on the ground. And he begins to say, I'm for you. I'm not against you. Saul is in leadership over David. And, and David knows that, and so David humbles himself under Saul. Even though Saul is not the best king, Saul has done some things that are not right or true, Saul is still the one that God has called to lead, and he's called David to follow, to be a warrior. So David humbles himself so that Saul might succeed. Have you ever had that type of experience? Uh, maybe it was at, at work or at church, um, and your, your boss, you just know if, you just, if they did it your way, it'd be better, right? Um, or maybe it's at home. <laughs> Let's be honest. If your spouse just did it your way, it would, be, it would be better. Have you ever had someone who is leading over you who doesn't do things the way you would do them? In David's case, not only is Saul a bad king, he's trying to kill him. Let's not forget that. He has thrown a spear at his son-in-law. Uh, that's some family tension right there. That's straight Jerry Springer. Uh, <laughs> let's be honest. Take the lie detector test. Do you want to kill your son-in-law? No, you failed, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Um, but for David, humility means submitting to the leadership 
uh, of the people that God has placed in, in his life, of Saul. For us, it means submitting to the leadership that people that God has placed in our lives, trusting that God's placed them there for a reason, and then doing our best to ensure their success. David fought for Saul. David wouldn't let people talk badly about Saul. David protected Saul. Uh, I was thinking about uh, marriage yesterday when I was working on this for no particular reason, so I just want to throw that out there. Um, But do you believe that God placed your spouse in your life to have some position of influence in your life, of leadership over you? And I'm not just talking about, like, um, wives to your husbands. I'm talking husbands to your wives. Husbands, do you believe your wives have been placed in your life for a reason by God to lead on some level, in some, in some way, in some place? Uh, when your spouse does something that you don't agree with, do you immediately try to change that or do something different? Or do you think God might be showing me something here through my spouse? God might want to teach me something through them. Or your supervisor at work, uh, when he does something or she does something different than you, do you assume that uh, they are wrong and you are right? Or do you assume that somehow they have a position of leadership for a reason and that God would want to teach you something through them? That's what David does. He humbles himself. He says, Saul, you are the king. You're the Lord's anointed. I want to serve and follow and learn from you. Uh, my first year in full-time ministry, I had a really hard time with this. I had a supervisor that, as a, as a, a friend, as a person I really like, as a boss, I did not agree, agree with. I didn't get along with him. We have two different paradigms for how we do ministry. Uh, and to be honest, I was arrogant. I was 22 uh, and thought that I knew the best way to do everything because I was 22, right? And just out of college, and that's what you think when you're just out of college and 22, is if they would just listen to me, the world would be fixed in like three days. God took seven, I'll take three, right? Is basically <laughs> what you think. And, and so I fought my supervisor on everything, I mean, I was the guy who was constantly challenging, constantly saying, no, don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. By the end of the year, I realized how little I knew, which was a good place for me to start. Uh, And I realized that God had placed me under this particular person's leadership to teach me a lot. He taught me a lot about structure, how to structure ministry so that it could succeed past 20 people or 30 people, but succeed to hundreds and thousands of people and really reach whole communities. But I needed to humble myself. I need to learn from that person. In the end, David tells Saul that he'll do everything he can to ensure Saul's success. When God called David to be king, he was ready, but until then, he was patient. And humility means sometimes just being patient and waiting and trusting that God has put people in leadership over us that we might be able to to follow them. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I I wonder if uh, that's where David was at at that point. Two questions as we close our morning together. Does God's love define you? If everything else was gone tomorrow, at your core, can you say, I am the one who Jesus loves, who God finds joy in? I can rest on Jesus' chest. I can sit with him. I can have that intimate experience with God. Does God's love define you? And the second question, is your life marked by a deep humility that comes from knowing Christ? Because if God's love defines us, then we can be marked by humility because we know where our identity rests, and it frees us up to have 
significance and humility at the same time? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then I want you to know that God wants nothing more than to reveal himself to you in such a way that you would be able to say without a shadow of a doubt, I know there is a God. I know that he loves me and that he wants to transform and change my life. I'm going to give you a minute to do that when we pray coming up here, just to invite God to lead you on this journey. His great desire is that every person in the world would know how deeply he loves you and that his love for you would begin to transform you. Maybe you're here this morning and you you have a deep relationship with God and and you you have a relationship that's marked by humility, but you don't have a passion. I'm going to pray that God would give you a vision for what could be because I think there's something in our our soul that that longs for significance and I want you to experience that. Uh, We want to be people who are about something. That's a craving that we have that God wants to meet. So I'm going to pray that God would reveal his, uh, his vision for what could be Uh, this week and continue to play that out for you as we continue on. We're also going to go into communion now. Uh, Communion is this amazing time where uh, we remember Jesus' sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, who being in the very nature of God, he's referring to Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the highest place in the name above every name. We come and remember that Jesus died, but that's not the end of the story. God raised him up. God exalted him to the highest place uh, that we might be able to experience God experience life, experience transformation and healing, and experience a deep humility uh, because we know that we're loved. So join me in prayer, and then we will take communion together. Let's pray. God, we believe that there's something within us that longs for significance, that longs to be about something, uh, that longs to change the world, uh, and we believe that's a longing from you. So would you be showing us uh, what you're calling us to? Uh, what it means to be people who are uh, about loving you and then experiencing transformation, who don't give up on this world, but uh, transform and change this world because we've experienced your transforming and changing love. Would you show us what that means for us today, this week, and this month? As we continue to pray, if you're here this morning and you've never come into a relationship with Jesus, if you've never invited him to lead you, if you can't say with everything that's in you, I am the one that Jesus loves. But you know that God is calling you. I'm going to give you a chance to just repeat after me a simple prayer and invite God to lead you. If you're sitting here this morning and your palms are sweating or your heart is racing, that could be an indicator that God might be calling you this morning. God's great desire is that you would come and know him and experience his love and that his love would transform you. So if God is calling you, you can just repeat this prayer quietly after me. You can say something like, Lord Jesus, I want to experience your love. I want to experience your healing. I want to experience your transformation. Would you come and guide me on this journey? Lord, I love you and I'm excited to follow you. Would you show me how to do that? And we all pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. 
You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.